are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We continue our exposition through the book of Genesis this evening. So please turn with me if you have a copy of God's Word to the first book of the Bible. Probably the first page of your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We are kind of in the middle of a two-part sermon on the days of creation, the six days of creation. And we're going back to the beginning of where it all began, of where this world began, of all things, how God made the heavens and the earth. So we're going to be spending our time again this evening in verses 3 through 25 of chapter 1. But let us begin in verse 1 for the sake of reading this evening. So hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. 
We're jumping back into this text. And as we said, it's highlighting that God made. Not necessarily, first and foremost, how he made, but it's that God made. As one commentator, John Collins said, this is exalted prose, highly structured and a beautiful description of this incredible work of creation. And in our prayers and our readings and our singings already this evening, there's so many facets of creation that we've touched on. But in this two-part sermon, we're looking at one thread. And that's the thread of order. The order that God set down in his creation. The narrative of the six days of creation highlights the divinely given order of all of creation. You remember our two main parts are, first we looked at the display of order in this text. And then second, we're going to spend most of our time tonight on the implications of order. So first, we looked at the display of order. And just for the sake of those who weren't here to remind us just very briefly, how is order displayed in this passage? Well, we looked at three ways. First was the pattern of each day. It's highly structured and highly repetitious, but it's showing there's order and structure even in the literary way in which this is formed for us. Second, we saw in the creating itself, order is emphasized. Distinctions are made. Days one through three, there's separations going on. According to its kind is a refrain used throughout, speaking of the generation of animals and plants after their own kind. So there's order in the creation itself. And then third, we looked at the pattern of the six days in total, where days one through three are setting up kingdoms, and days four, five, and six are setting up kings of those kingdoms. Day one is light and dark, corresponding to day four, where the sun and the moon are placed as kings over that kingdom. Day two sets a new kingdom, the sky and the sea. And then day five, corresponding to that, gives us the birds and the fish that are the kings of those kingdoms. Day three, we see the land and the vegetation being made. And then day six, animals, and then ultimately, humankind. Adam and Eve are created to rule over the land and the vegetation. And this highly structured pattern is, again, showing us order, all culminating on that day seven, that Sabbath rest for all of creation. This intentional construction of this narrative shows us in every way how deliberate, how purposeful God was in making and putting all things in order. And so with this order here in the text, in the creation, we are looking at tonight four implications of the order in creation. And we looked at the first last time, God is supreme. You notice nowhere in this passage is there any hint of unrest in creation. There's nothing, there's nobody trying to usurp God's authority. God comes in and creates how he wills. There's no fight. There's no argument. God is the creator. He is supreme. All things in heaven and earth are subject to him. So now we move this evening to the second implication. And now we'll slow down, hopefully not too much, and look at these final three implications of the order that we see in creation. And so the second implication is this. The scientific endeavor is legitimate. The scientific endeavor is legitimate. The order God has placed in creation gives legitimacy to the scientific endeavor enterprise. The pattern of the sun rising and setting, the seasons coming and going, the earth rotating on its axis and around the sun, all of this is counted on 
because God has put it there. God made it. God has instilled order that now we can explore the world. There's order that we can make sense of. There's an underlying assumption here that creation will persist under God's providence. The sun and the moon indicate days and years, as the text says. God created stability is in the created world. It will persist because of God's order that he has given it. And so we can think in the opposite of this, the, the corollary here, without believing that creation is designed by a creator, there is no consistent way to think that we can even do science. And science here, we're speaking of the exploration of the natural world, of the world God has made. Without believing creation is designed by a creator, there's no consistent way to think we can even explore the world. We'll be talking about this a little bit, but the naturalistic understanding that's prevalent in our day of evolution by natural selection and survival of the fittest, this is dependent upon chance and randomness. And if the world is here by chance and randomness, then your brain is a result of chance and randomness. And if your brain resulting, the result of chance and randomness, how can we believe that your brains can actually perceive a world in any rational way? There's no rational reason to trust our brains. And there's no rational reason we should think the world will continue tomorrow the way it did today. Or that the natural laws will continue tomorrow without thinking creation is designed by a creator. There's no way we can consistently do science. It's dependent upon the stability and order that God has created and put into all things. The naturalistic evolutionary mindset is self-defeating because our minds are the result of chance and randomness and we cannot find order. There is no order in the world if that is true. And so science, rightly understood, is the exploration of these divisions that God has created and the, the kinds that God has placed into the world. Not everything in the world is alike. And so science is exploring the differences and the similarities between organisms and different animals and, and plants and chemistry and atoms and all these things I don't know much about at all. But science is seeking to understand these things that God has made. And these distinctions are good. They're worth exploring. They're worth understanding. And they're useful for us. But at the, very, at the very bottom line, even if science was not useful for us in any technological way, the exploration of creation glorifies God. Science is good. Exploring creation is wonderful. Now a, a trip to the zoo is not merely looking at what unique creatures are out there, but it's saying, look at the glory of God on display. There is no, as we see from this, there is no contradiction between science and the Bible. There's no contradiction between the science and the Bible when we understand both rightly. Now, a lot has been made of so-called contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2 and science, so-called science. And when we see these so-called contradictions, either we're misunderstanding God's word or we're misunderstanding the natural world around us. 
These two things will work harmoniously when we understand them rightly. So the question is, when there are these so-called contradictions, we need to go back and say, what do we have wrong? Do we have our understanding of God's word wrong? Or do we have the understanding of God's created world wrong? God authored both his word and our created world. And it is good for Christians to even, alongside non-Christians, explore the world God has given us and learning more about God's creation. So, this implication is the, the scientific endeavor is legitimate. And we need good Christians doing good science. We need it. If you kids, you, you guys who are in elementary school, middle school, high school, we need good scientists. If you like science, this is a wonderful thing to explore. You're exploring God's world. You're exploring what he has made. And it's wonderful to think about going up, growing up being a chemist or a biologist, a physician. Many ways that we can use the science that we have been able to understand for God's glory. We need Christians to do this great endeavor. The third implication is similar, but it's this. The world could only result from design by God. Implication of order is this. The world could only result from design by God. And really what I'm looking at here is some apologetics. Some of you are really into this and probably know, and certainly know, far more than I do. But I think it's important for us as Christians to understand the Christian, we'll say, worldview, understanding that God created all things, and compare that to other worldviews out there that we're coming in contact with daily. Right? Even when you listen to um, political commentary, often they're referencing evolutionary biology, well, people act this way because of evolutionary biology. Just It's, it's such a, a, a natural thing people say in our world. And we need to be aware that these are two different worldviews. A worldview that God created all things. And then the other worldview primarily that we're going to think of tonight is the worldview of naturalistic materialism. And that worldview, typically the, pro, the proponents of that worldview tell us that we came to be where we are today as a result of evolution by natural selection and survival of the fittest. And I want us to think about that today. Think about that for a few minutes. And most of the rest of our time will be spent thinking about this. And how does the creation account help us and enable us to think critically about the Christian worldview, but also non-Christian worldviews and understand the holes in their worldviews? This theory of natural selection, as we said a few moments ago, is dependent upon pure chance. Accidents of nature created life, they say. And once life was created, genetic anomalies and mutations have allowed life to evolve into more complicated life forms. So says this view. And I want to mention for us four problems with this view. Four problems with this view that's built upon a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. And the first is this, the problem of the appearance of life. John Lennox in his book, Cosmic Chemistry, which I'm going to mention a few times, and I, I recommend as a great resource for further study on these things. He catalogs many different theories, many of them above my head that I don't quite understand, that scientists are exploring to try to explain how life got here in the first place. And even non-Christian scientists are trying to understand, and they admit things like this. Non-Christian scientists will say this, no solution 
of the origin of life problem will be possible until the gap between the two kinds of chemistry is closed. The two kinds of chemistry is a, a, a chemistry of life and a chemistry of non-life. And until we can bridge that gap in basic chemistry, scientists, scientists have no idea how life originated. And indeed, James Tour, who's a contemporary American chemist, one of the most widely published in his field, he said this, we synthetic chemists should state the obvious. The appearance of life on earth is a mystery. We are nowhere near solving this problem. The proposals offered thus far to explain life's origin make no scientific sense. Scientists acknowledge science itself cannot explain how life has come onto the scene. And Tour goes on to say, or elsewhere says, based on what we know of chemistry, life should not exist anywhere in the, in the universe. Life's ubiquity on this planet is utterly bizarre, and the lifelessness found on the other planets makes far more chemical sense. So what are we going to say? That science tells us how we got here, or that the God of heaven and earth explains how we arrived where we are? Life is a result of God's creative action. We are not simply materialists, naturalists, who think the, create, the, the world we see is all there is. Because if that's the case, life is impossible. There's a great problem with the appearance of life itself. Second, related, the second problem is this. The genetic, genetic evolution is practically, mathematically impossible. Linux says, Richard Dawkins contends that unguided natural processes can account for the origin of biological information. No external source of information is necessary. So here he's talking about biological information, which is DNA, roughly, right? He's speaking here of DNA. How did this information get to be compiled in one place for us to have life and life to continue to propagate? Dawkins says, natural processes alone can account for all of this biological information. This genetic information is incredibly complex, more complicated than anything we can understand to date. And just to demonstrate how improbable it is for all of this information to come together and to be correct and to be helpful, I want to show a couple different uh, examples. First is thinking about creating the word the on a typewriter by randomly pressing one key every second. How long do you think it would take to create the word the? Just again, random, at random, pressing a button on your computer. One scientist, Russell Grigg, he calculated that it would take 34.72 hours to happen upon three letters. Three letters. It's nothing compared to the extent of DNA and the information it contains. He goes on, uh, Linux goes on summarizing Grigg's work, to produce something as long as the 23rd Psalm, a short Hebrew poem made of 603 letters, verse numbers, and spaces, would take on average around 10 to the 1,017th power years. That's a one with 1,017 zeros after it. That's how many years it would take just to produce Psalm 23 at random with one key per second. And let's go to another example. Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickram, Wickramasinghe, probably didn't say that right. Together they did a study and thinking about this. And they said this, Troops of monkeys thundering away at random on typewriters could not produce the works of Shakespeare. 
For the reason that the whole observable universe is not large enough to contain the necessary monkeys, monkey hordes. The same is true for living material. The likelihood of spontaneous formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 zeros after it. It is big enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup. And if the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. There are enough, there's not enough space in our universe for monkey hordes to even create Shakespeare, which again is nothing compared to the information encoded within the DNA in every single cell of living material. Now, most non-Christians agree that pure random processes cannot account for this genetic information. So where are they? Where do they go? There's no theory left to explain these things. So that's the second problem here. The first was the appearance of life. Now is the second. The genetic evolution is practically, mathematically impossible. And the third problem here we see, the hypothetical earlier stages of development are not coherent. Because evolution and natural selection require previous stages of development to get to where we are today. That's their whole theory. So we went through various stages of simple life forms to medium, comp- medium complicated life forms to now complex life forms. But these hypothetical early, earlier stages of development are not coherent in two ways. I'll show why. First is the idea of irreducible complexity. You may have heard of this before. And the idea is basically this. There are many things that require the interdependency of two complex systems to survive. Two or more separate systems evolving simultaneously to create one output is exponentially more unlikely than one system, which even one system evolving is highly, uh, incredibly unlikely. So in other words, you have a system that requires two separate things that are independent of each, interdependent with one another. And you can't have just one by itself because that does not achieve the end result. You need two separate systems to work together. Think of a mouse trap, for example. It has several different pieces, and one piece evolving will not get you a mouse trap. You need two separate systems that work together to create the one mouse trap. And there are many ways that we see this in the in the human body, in creation, among animal life, where there is where where, where creation is irreducibly complex. It cannot be distilled down into more simple Uh, to more simple stages of life. And so the the hypothetical earlier stages of development here are not coherent. And the other example is this. There is no indication that there is such thing as primitive cells that permit more complexity to evolve out of it. And this has long been the theory that primitive cells were created and then evolution brought more complex cells out of it. There's no indication that such a thing exists. Jacques Minaud, who is not a Christian, said this, we have no idea what the structure of a primitive cell might have been. The simplest living system known to us, the bacterial cell, in its overall chemical plan is the same as that of all other living beings. It employs the same genetic code and the same mechanism of translation as do, for example, human cells. Thus, the simplest cells available to us for study have nothing primitive about them. No vestiges of truly primitive structures are discernible. 
So yes, while some cells are more simple than others, scientists acknowledge they're not more primitive than others. There is no coherent earlier stage of development that scientists have discovered. And so this world can only result from design by God. That's the only way it makes sense. And the fourth example, the fourth apologetic here I want to offer this defense of this idea is this. The moral ambiguity inherent in a naturalistic worldview. There are many non-Christian dogmas about morality today. Just read the newspapers, watch social media, human rights, justice, right? These ideas you'll hear ad nauseum. And indeed, these actually are grounded in, in the image of God. And there's something really true to these calls for justice and rights. Absolutely. But they've been perverted in our world. And they find their roots in the order that God has embedded in creation. But apart from God, why in the world can somebody call for justice, a morality, a standard of good and evil, if there is no God who's ordered the world? If the world is completely random, if the world is simply chance, what are you telling me I can't do something? There's no coherent reason for morality to exist if God does not exist. The naturalist, the one who's the proponent of a naturalistic evolutionary view of the world cannot tell you what to do. They cannot bring morality to bear on any argument they, may, they, they have and be consistent. Their worldview does not permit, does not give a basis for morality. But indeed, they're tapping into something that's true. They're tapping into the fact that God made heaven and earth, tapping the fact that they are made in God's image, that there is a order to the world. And when there's injustice in the world, we all cry out. And yes, sure, some, some views of justice are, are, are warped and perverted and we want to correct that with God's word. But we must acknowledge that the morality in all human beings, we all have a sense of what is true and right to some degree. It's because God created the world with order and purpose. And that brings us to our final implication of order today. God is supreme. The scientific endeavor is legitimate. This world could only result from design by God. And then finally, God gives creation purpose. God gives creation purpose. By ordering the world, there's a purpose he is instilling and embedding in his creation. And we'll talk more about this specifically with relation to human beings next time as we look at humans being made in the image of God. But even before we look at that directly, look at all of creation. There's an order. There's a purpose. The sun is there for a reason. The stars are there for a reason. The birds and the, and the, and the fish are there for a reason. God's order are guide paths for how things are to operate. The earth is to rotate at a certain speed to maintain the days. Animals reproduce after their own kinds. The land and sea have their places so that life can flourish on earth. The human ordering, as I say, will come next time. But we see here that God is rightfully the lawgiver. And the law is embedded in the order that he is putting in his creation. An ordered nature is not amoral. It's not moralist. It is not, um, it is not without right and wrong values in it. What I mean by that, is, by, by that is this. 
all creation and the order that God has instilled is morally good. So you think of natural law, whether you mean physical laws, that we see God upholding the universe in particular ways and this uh, like gravity, um, other uh, force, acceleration, these ideas, we see natural laws at play. This is how God is upholding the universe in, re- in, in repeatable ways, ways we can study and examine. So natural law is good because God has put it there. And then we, but natural law can also mean not just physical laws, but moral laws. Natural law, the, the moral laws God has embedded in his creation. These things are good and they're from God and they are for all of his creation. So when we think of natural law, we don't think of some kind of godless set of laws out there. Natural law is God's law that he has put in creation by virtue of him being the creator and giving us order to the universe. The universe is designed to work in a certain way according to natural law, both physical laws and moral laws. God has given purpose to his creation. But of course, this brings us to a conclusion. This raises the possibility for having disorder enter the world. There is order, but there is the possibility of disorder entering the world. And of course, we know in our sin that's coming just a few chapters later that humankind rejected the God of Genesis 1 where humankind has said, we want to be our own gods of the universe. We refuse to see his order and his handiwork. Because ultimately, what sin is, one way we can word it, is sin is a rejection of God's order and creation. I am rejecting God as the one who's given purpose and order to all things. And that's why Genesis 1 is here, to show us both literarily and in actuality that God has brought order and purpose here and now where we live. That's why Genesis 1 is still in our Bibles is for fallen people to realize this is not how the world was supposed to be. We see the corruption and the decay and the difficulty and the hardships and the trials and the pain and the suffering all around us every day. And Genesis 1 says that is not how it was meant to be. The pain and difficulty you experience is a result of sin disordering God's good creation. Genesis 1 was given for a sinful people to understand a good God. But it also reorients us back to God who sent his only begotten son in order to reorder the world. You go back to those beautiful descriptions in the book of Revelation of what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be like and they're filled with descriptions of creation. But a creation rightly ordered. Or the prophecy that we see of the lion and the lamb laying down together. This is an ordered creation, a beautiful creation now reordered by Jesus Christ. Genesis 1, does it not lead us to yearn for Christ reordering all things according to God's purpose? We sit here in a broken world. We sit as ones who ourselves are sinning against our God bringing disorder into this world, but yet it is Christ who has come, not just to forgive your sins, not just to make you righteous, not just to reorder the world, but in order that God would dwell with his people, righteous people in a reordered universe. We see a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, what they will be like. 
We see a glimpse of the hope we have in Christ. We see that what is right now that we see in our world, our Monday through Saturday lives, that is not all that there is. Because the final say is Jesus Christ who came to make all things new. Eternity is not a creation-less existence. It is a recreated existence. So as we rejoice in the God of heaven and earth who made all things, we rejoice now and eagerly await our redemption. The adoption of sons, creation groans for that day when Christ will make all things new. So brothers and sisters, it is a joy to look back at this text of what God has done, bringing order out of nothing. And we can anticipate how he is bringing order to this world broken by the fall. When we look to Christ, when we trust in him, we know that new creation will be ours. So brothers and sisters, with patience, let us persevere. Let us look to this good savior, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let us look to him in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the order you have instilled in your creation. And we are, we are grieved by the sin and how it has disordered your good creation. We thank you for Christ, the one who has come and the one who will come again to make all things right. And as we await his coming, we pray that you would make us faithful servants of Jesus Christ. May this week we seek to love our neighbor and to undo the distortions of disorder that sin has brought into this world, may we in our various spheres work to love our neighbor in spite of the disorder in our world. May we seek your righteousness and your justice for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.